paid uh, $38 million, looks like $38 million in taxes. Uh, if you add up the lines for income, he made more than $150 million in that year. Mazel tov. The CBO estimated that 24 million people would have coverage under Obamacare in 2016. They were way off. They were off by 13 million people. The order he blocked was a watered-down version of the first order and should have never been blocked to start with. It's time to make America great again. Join the movement. The Neil A. Caruso Show Show. Podcast. Time to dream big. Informative, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. All right, Thursday podcast, March 16th, 2017. Welcome to the program, everybody. Uh, A busy day, as always. A lot going on uh, around uh, the United States. Uh, Big today is the budget that came out that was released by President Trump. Um, the travel suspension has been blocked. We talked about that uh, last night when we, we waited to record that until, the, uh, until after the Trump rally last night, but uh, recording early in the afternoon uh, today. Uh, we do have a big interview with a former State Department official who will join me later on, but uh, first we will start with the budget and then we'll get to the travel suspension and all of that. Uh, coming up. But um, the America First budget blueprint was put forth uh, by the Trump administration today. Uh, of the 15 cabinet agencies listed in Trump's budget, um, only a sliver seeing any increases over their 2017 levels, but the increases are generous and those are mainly on defense. I'm going to go through all of the uh, the big um, winners in terms of uh, budget increases. Uh, for you, the uh, Defense, Veterans Affairs, and Homeland Security are the top three increases, and they really account for the entirety of the budget hikes and fulfilling his campaign promises to protect the nation and uh, also to reform the VA, which uh, is a big win for veterans. Um, a $59.5 billion increase in those three departments alone. Now, the other 12 agencies face cuts worth about $57.3 billion. So the budget would add a little bit, but over time it would decrease, um, especially with the way that the economy has been moving, um, has been increasing steadily, uh, and the market as well. So um, here's a breakdown of the budget for you, and we'll start with defense because that is the big budget winner, uh, $52.3 billion increase in defense spending according to this um, America First budget put forth by Trump today. Um, That's a 10% increase in defense spending. Um, That's uh, obviously going to be met with a lot of support from Republicans like John McCain, um, who supported a uh, $640 billion budget in the past. This is a $639 billion defense budget. Um, The huge increase restores a $52 billion um, billion dollars to the Department of Defense and uh, $2 billion more to other defense programs in the repeal of the defense sequestration, uh, excuse me. So the defense sequester, we've talked about that here, has really um, put a hold on the military. And we also know that uh, the Navy, the U.S. Uh, Air Force, and the Army all have outdated uh, equipment, and that has really put a, um, a impediment on our um, strength as a nation. So President Trump said we're going to accomplish peace through strength. We have to spend more on the military, especially with this rising threat of ISIS, and that's a big part of his budget. He outlines here cybersecurity is significantly um, a major target of this budget, highlighted as a key area to improve the U.S. Um, to build a more lethal joint force. 
The budget also funds efforts to, quote, strike ISIS targets, support our partners, disrupt ISIS's external operations, and cut off its financing. Um, and, uh, you know, actually a, a minor thing here, but, uh, you know, the Obama administration had been referring to ISIS as ISIL in, uh, in all of the government forums, but it is officially uh, laid out here as ISIS. Um, the defense windfall also addresses warfighting readiness and shortfalls to, um, to their personnel and maintenance and other, um, uh, other problems that the defense sequester cause uh, in terms of military preparedness, uh, something that we uh, hammered on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in terms of our inability to fight against this rising threat because we have ships that are uh, ships and planes that are literally grounded and, and harbored because they can't be uh, can't be uh, put out they're not ready uh, so this de uh, defense increase uh, of 10 percent to increase 52.3 billion dollars is the big budget item and that'll be the big uh, the big story over the next couple of days in terms of the budget. Uh, the VA, now this is crucial, and I've talked about here, and I'm actually uh, going out to uh, to the VA today. Um, they get an increase, and I'm curious to see what they think of this. A 5.9% increase, it's a $4.4 billion um, increase, representing um, a key area where Trump promised in the campaign. Now the budget increases discretionary funding for VA health care by $4.6 billion, while also investing in IT advancements to improve efficiency. It provides monetary support for VA programs that serve homeless and at-risk veterans. So a big win for veterans. And, you know, at the uh, the rally on uh, yesterday, yesterday's uh, rally in Nashville, uh, he made it a, a point, and he always does this to start off, thank you to our military um, who have served and continue to serve, uh, who protect our freedom and, and our nation's uh, interests. And, you know, so the defense and, and the VA, big uh, budget items that will um, give a little bit more support uh, to those who support us. Um, Homeland Security, the other uh, top three budget increase, $2.8 billion increase, which is a 6.8% increase in Homeland Security. Now, this includes... Border enforcement, including the wall, and President Trump said we're building the wall. He made that uh, that point yesterday that while they're saying, well, maybe he won't. Maybe it's just about uh, surveillance. No, the wall is a necessary component of that and something that uh, was briefly brought up in, in my interview on this podcast. Um, so a high-priority infrastructure and border security technology is included in this homeland security increase. Um, the budget supplies $314 million to recruit, hire, and train 500 new Border Patrol agents and 1,000 new Immigration and Customs Enforcement personnel and support staff. And they've been calling for this for a long time, and the Obama administration cut back on ICE agents, sanctuary city policy, lawlessness. About $1.5 billion is provided for expansion, detention, and removal of illegal aliens, while... $15 million is set to go to mandatory nationwide implementation of the E-Verify system. Now, there are some cuts here. The cuts include, in terms of Homeland Security, uh, a $667 million in uh, FEMA programs, Federal Emergency Management Agency programs that weren't authorized by Congress and uh, underperforming transportation security administrative programs. Um, so cutting up bureaucracy while also putting the funding where we need it in terms of border security and law enforcement. So keeping his promises there by putting forth um, this budget. Now, what gets cut? Because obviously that's a big increase in terms of defense, the VA and Homeland Security, and the whole purpose of this and when he's called it is his America First budget blueprint is to keep the country safe. And that's what this budget is all about, is putting the money in the important and the necessities. Um, so the losers here are really the bureaucratic systems that have been set up to uh, undermine Trump. Um, that have you have people in there that are, and really, you know, we don't know where the leaks are coming, but the bureaucracy is slowing down the Trump agenda, and so that's where the cuts are coming from. 
Uh, so let me give you that. Uh, Health and Human Services will be cut by 17.9%. Um, the State Department, now this is a huge one. The State Department will get a decrease of 28.7%, uh, a decrease of $10.9 billion. This budget um, eliminates the Global Climate Change Initiative and ceases payments to the UN climate change programs. Funding for the UN and affiliated agencies is reduced overall, as is foreign aid, uh, putting the country first, and really this is up to the UN to, to pay their fair share. Um, and more on that in a second, I just want to get into all the State Department decreases. This is really cutting up bureaucracy, and really the climate change initiative, there's so much money being funneled in that, that doesn't address what's really killing the climate, which is terrorism. I mean, think about it, okay? Yes, it, does climate change exist? Okay, sure. But at the same time, what is really ruining the climate are these bombs being set off, and we have uh, missile tests galore coming from North Korea and Iran. I would think that that would hurt the climate a little bit more than, uh, you know, a little warm weather, and then we could deal with that. Um the State Department's educational and cultural exchange programs get cuts, as do multilateral development banks, including the World Bank. Uh, but the budget isn't all cuts in the State Department. Um, citing the Benghazi Accountability Review Board, money is provided to maintain robust funding levels for embassy security. So there will be a little over $3 billion provided for security assistance to Israel. Um, and, of course... Uh, President Trump has promised to move the embassy that is in Israel to the holy site of Jerusalem. Um, economic development assistance programs are also uh, going to get some funding for uh, vaccines. Now, on the UN, because now the UN comes out today, and they're warning about abrupt funding cuts from this budget and saying that, well, this is dangerous, that we need America. Well, where the hell are the other countries? I mean, we've gone over here. The fact that you're not only getting, I mean, the United States is paying more than any other country, but these countries don't pay their fair share at all, and they don't even come close. China and Japan are the second and third largest contributors, with each contributing about 10%. But the Obama administration shelled out a billion dollars on the UN Green Climate Fund including $500 million transferred just days before he left office. So there's a lot of nonsense spending, and I've been very critical of the U.N. because when it comes down to it, you're, you know, the U.N. is just monitoring the situation in Aleppo. I mean, what are they doing? That situation has gotten progressively worse. Of course, we're not talking about it because Gary Johnson hasn't made a flub. Um, but if you look at the situation in Aleppo, it's still obliterated. And there's no aid, and the U.N. is doing absolutely nothing. And Nikki Haley, the U.N. ambassador uh, from the U.S., said uh, today that it's time for the intergovernmental organization to stop relying so heavily on the U.S. for funding. This is what Nikki Haley said. She said, quote, We need to see other countries step up and pay more. We've carried the burden for a really long time. And it doesn't mean we're not going to continue to pay our due, but at some point other countries had to step in and start funding those missions too. The U.S. pays all of these funds, and what do we get out of it? They don't have our back, we have everyone else's back. So it's time to put uh, the country first. And that's the budget. Um, and the State Department is the big uh, the big cut, and obviously he's getting the media attention. Um, there are a couple other cuts. The EPA is another one. Decrease at 31% there. That's really not a full-blown cabinet department anyway. But they're getting major cuts, including an elimination of over 3,000 bureaucrats. Um, transportation, energy is getting a decrease. Uh, HUD is getting a decrease as well. Um, and the Justice Department is getting a cut. Um, but there are funding for, there's a key provision here to target the, quote, worst of the worst criminal organizations and drug traffickers and to combat Illegal immigration, the budget provides for the hiring of 75 additional immigration judges, 60 additional border enforcement prosecutors, 40 deputy U.S. marshals, and 40 attorneys. 
uh, bankruptcy filing fees are increased in an effort to produce an additional $150 million. So while the Justice Department gets a decrease of about 3.8%, there are some increases within there. It seems like a very pro-America budget, um, and so I wanted to get that to you. Defense, VA, Homeland Security getting the big increases as they should in this age of terror. Now, Obamacare, uh, obviously still the still the main story is repealing this bill and the Republican infighting I put out uh, in my newsletter last night about the American Health Care Act uh, and the battling that's going on between House Speaker Paul Ryan and conservative Republicans. Uh, President Trump, of course, has endorsed this plan. Uh, the Obamacare repeal bill actually cleared a key House hurdle today. Um, it Thursday morning, the House Budget Committee approved the package over the objections of three GOP members. Uh, 19 to 17 was the vote to send the American Health Care Act to the House Rules Committee. GOP leaders uh, Paul Ryan hoping to take the bill up in the House, uh, take the full bill up next week, but there are obviously some a lot of markups that are going to be done, and I've been critical, you know that, um, because it's certainly not uh, going to reduce the deficit enough, and frankly not going to reduce premiums and, and um, deductibles enough, in my opinion. Now, Republicans are saying, well, the CBO is wrong. They were wrong in 2010 when they predicted 24 million Americans would be on the exchanges. We find out that number is much less. The number's uh, about 12 million Americans are actually on the exchanges. So that was a big um, uh, big mess up there. And, you know, a lot has to do with the Obama administration not communicating exactly how this bill would work. Because you remember Nancy Pelosi saying, well, we have to read the we have to read the bill after it's passed. So got to pass it to read it just doesn't make sense. Uh, so Republicans playing this out in public. I don't know whether that's the best course of action. I still believe that they should have had a consensus bill already put forth and then communicate this with the American people. But President Donald Trump on the stump uh, to push this health care legislation. He was in Nashville, Tennessee yesterday. He'll be in Kentucky, uh, Rand Paul State. Uh, Rand Paul is called this Obamacare light. Uh, he will be in Kentucky on Monday. But here is President Trump on the Obamacare and the state of the American Health Care Act. Take a listen. I want to get to taxes. I want to cut the hell out of taxes. But, but, before I can do that, I would have loved to have put it first, I'll be honest. There is one more very important thing that we have to do. And we are going to repeal and replace horrible, disastrous Obamacare. If we leave Obamacare in place, millions and millions of people will be forced off their plans. And your senators just told me that in your state, you're down to practically no insurers. You can have nobody. You can have nobody. And this is true all over. The insurers are fleeing. The insurers are fleeing. It's a catastrophic situation. And there's nothing to compare anything to because Obamacare won't be around for a year or two. It's, it's gone. So it's not like, oh, gee, they have this. Obamacare is gone. Premiums will continue to soar, double digits and even triple digits in many cases. It will drain our budget and destroy our jobs. Remember all of the broken promises. You can keep your doctor. You can keep your plan. Remember the wise guy? Remember the wise guy that essentially said, the American people, the so-called architect, the American people are stupid because they approved it? We're going to show them. Those in Congress who made these promises have no credibility whatsoever on health care. And remember this. Remember this. If we took, because there's such divisiveness, and I'm not just talking now with me, there was with Obama, there was with Bush, the level of hatred and divisiveness with the politicians. I remember years ago, I'd go to Washington. who's always very politically active. And Republicans and Democrats, they'd fight during the day and they'd go to dinner at night. Today, there's a level that nobody's seen before. Just remember this. If we submitted 
the Democrats' plan, drawn everything perfect for the Democrats, we wouldn't get one vote from the Democrats. That's the way it is. That's how much divisiveness and other things there are. So it's a problem. But we're going to get it by. Yeah, President Trump is absolutely correct there. I mean, the division over not just this bill, but in general, and something I talk about in my upcoming uh, interview that you'll hear uh, after the break about um, uh, about national security and about the travel suspension, but the division exists on, on every level. And if, frankly, he's absolutely correct. If they put forth a liberal health care plan, they still would not approve it just because it was put forth by Republicans, which is, you know, it's really um, sad that it's come to that, they're, they're, that all they do is resist and there's no coming together at all as a country. Despite what they say, they don't want to come together with Trump. They don't want to debate with him. They don't want to sit down at the table with him. And then they just leak anyway of what the ne private negotiations are. Um, House Budget Chairwoman Diane Black today, Republican from Tennessee, appealed to Republicans on the committee to vote in favor of this American Health Care Act, calling it, quote, the conservative health care vision we've been talking about for years. I tell you, I hope she's right that the three-prong approach um, works here, but there's got to be a lot of markups. Um, and House Speaker Paul Ryan is dismissing reports that the GOP and the White House uh, were at odds on the bill and told journalists that Trump was deeply involved in the efforts to repeal and replace the uh, Obamacare uh, Act. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens here. Obviously, the CBO um, is says that the Republican proposal would be less generous with new tax credits. I don't really think the tax credits are uh, smart. It's just, um, you know, more uh, Obamacare uh, mess in there. Um, but I understand a little bit of the need to make sure that no one obviously gets taken off of their insurance plans. And if that's the way to do it, maybe you settle for that. But there are a lot of um, there are a lot of issues with this bill. Um, and the premiums are still going to increase, uh, it seems like, and at least according to the CBO. But Republicans criticizes Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price uh, downplayed the report as well, saying that we d disagree strenuously with the report uh, that was put out. Um, so coming up uh, after the break, we have an interview with Tanisha Tingle-Smith, and uh, she is a former um, foreign policy, where she's a current former policy analyst, but she worked for the State Department and advised uh, both the U.S. Department of State and the Treasury Departments and the CIA, and from 95 to 2001, she was an analyst and assistant VP for Global Emerging Markets Economic Research at Solomon Smith Barney and Merrill Lynch. She holds an MA in International Affairs from the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. And um, very knowledgeable interview, 15 years of experience spending Wall Street and Washington and specializes in politics, political um, economy, and the international relations of emerging economy countries. And we get into the travel suspension that was blocked by a judge uh, from Hawaii yesterday and Maryland, too, blocked it this morning. So we get into all of that and the political machinations in Washington because um, she would know, I mean, being that she was in Washington, I flat out asked her. Um, why are why is there so much resisting? Why do they vehemently oppose President Trump? And can't they just come together? So you'll actually be surprised by her response. Um, that's coming up after the break um, as we continue on the Neil A. Christian Show podcast on this Thursday, March 16th. Neil's the real deal, but don't just take our word for it. I'll tell you what, I've gotten to know him really well. He's the real deal. We have somebody who's the real deal working for us, and that's what we need. Neil's the real deal. Telling it the way it is on the Neil A. Caruso Show podcast on iTunes and the Neil A. Caruso Show Sundays at 12 noon Eastern on neilacaruso.com. When it comes to saving money, don't act like a baby. Goo goo gaga. Be the boss and make a budget. I'm the boss, baby. You're the boss of me. I am the boss of you. Or not. M2. Or not. M2. Need a little help? Aren't you gonna do any work? I'm very busy delegating. Create a personalized savings plan. We can share. You obviously didn't go to business school. And get other tools and tips at feedthepig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. A ranger station. I'd like to report a bear hug. Okay. I put out my campfire and Smokey Bear hugged me. So you drowned the fire, you stirred it. 
drowned it again, and felt that it was cold? Uh-huh. Yeah, he's just letting you know you did good. Bear hug from Smokey Bear. Status update! I'm gonna let you go now. There are many ways to start a fire, but one sure way to put it out. Learn how you can do your part at SmokeyBear.com. Sponsored by the U.S. Forest Service Ad Council and your state forester. make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. President Reagan, and neither will you. Passionate talk and real solutions for America on the Neelix Russo Show podcast. Informative, insightful, and valiant leadership. Telling it the way it is to make a difference. NeelakeRusso.com Let me give you the bad, the sad, news. Moments ago, I learned that a district judge in Hawaii part of the much overturned Ninth Circuit Court and I have to be nice, otherwise I'll get criticized for for speaking poorly about our courts. A judge has just blocked our executive order on travel and refugees coming into our country from certain countries. The order he blocked was a watered down version of the first order that was also blocked by another judge and should have never been blocked to start with. This new order was tailored to the dictates of the Ninth Circuit's, in my opinion, flawed ruling. This is, in the opinion of many, an unprecedented judicial overreach. If he thinks there's danger out there, he or she Whoever is president can say, I'm sorry, folks. Not now, please. We got enough problems. We're talking about the safety of our nation, the safety and security of our people. We're going to fight this terrible ruling. We're going to take our case as far as it needs to go, including all the way up to the Supreme Court. We're going to win. We're going to keep our citizens safe. And regardless, we're going to keep our citizens safe. Believe me. You just heard from their President Trump in Nashville, Tennessee, on the travel order suspension. And now joining us to talk about all of that is Tanisha Tingle-Smith. She is a global political analyst and also a former State Department official. She has a lot of titles, as I went through before the break, but um, she joins us now to talk about this travel suspension. Uh, Ms. Smith, thank you so much for uh, for coming on today. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's my pleasure to join you. So let's jump right into this travel suspension. Um, Hawaii uh, just blocked this uh, last night before it went into, uh, before it took uh, place uh, Thursday at midnight, um, so Hawaii blocked it, Maryland then blocked it. They don't cite the law in this though. And I'm curious first, what is your opinion on president Trump's travel suspension from these uh, six nations? Well, I think it needs to be looked at through two lenses. The first is the constitutionality of, of the executive order. Um, as you mentioned, um, overnight, two federal judges, one in Hawaii and Maryland have blocked Trump's new travel ban. Um, citing or deeming it unconstitutional to target persons based on religion or national origin. So the question remains whether or not the language and intent and effect of this revised executive order is a direct assault on the fundamental constitutional values of equal protection and religious freedom. In essence, is this travel ban tantamount to an Arab or Muslim ban? Uh, and that is something that's going to play out in the court over the coming weeks and months. 
um, Hawaii right. and Maryland are two of many states that will be mounting legal challenge. Um, and so uh, based on President Trump's speech last night, it appears that he is intent on taking this, appealing it, as, as perhaps to the Supreme Court, taking it to the Supreme Court. But it has to first go through courts of appeals. And because we're talking about a diverse set of states, California, Massachusetts, New York, Oregon, Washington, as well as Hawaii and Maryland, uh, will be uh, seeking legal challenge. And so this is going to play out in the ninth court of appeals, fourth court of appeals, second court of appeals. So this is going to be bogged down uh, for some time. It doesn't appear uh, unless the Trump administration goes back and issues yet another redraft of this travel order. Uh, that it will take effect in certainly not this month. Well, I'm not sure that a redraft would be um, would be effective because clearly they are they're not citing the law, which is uh, U.S. Code uh, 1182F or 8 U.S. Code 1182F. They're not citing that in their in the judges uh, blocking. They're citing President Trump's um, or then candidate Trump's past comments about uh, a Muslim ban. But if you read the law like I have and I know you have. You look at the executive order, and there's no mention of religion. Now, the original one did say that they that he wanted to put Christians who were being persecuted in the Middle East ahead of uh, anyone else in terms of uh, refugee admittance. Um, does that? I mean, do you think your your personal view on this does this equate to a religious test? I mean, it's clearly not from from reading this, right? I think the challenge is, again, looking at this as the constitutionality versus the merit of the policy, right? And, and so deeming something constitutional doesn't negate that it might be bad policy. Um, and so that's why I think this has to be unpacked in two different ways. The courts are going to uh, really flush this out. Um, the language, at least of the original bill, um, harkened back to a earlier and more odious period in American history, um, referencing the Chinese Exclusion Act, which singularly identified Chinese laborers and, and barred them from immigrating for, for several decades. Um, this is very reminiscent, I guess the, the language of the first bill was very reminiscent of that. It is questionable, and this links to exploring whether or not this furthers our aim of thwarting another possible terrorist attack. Why were these six, initially seven, Iraq, uh, as you know, has been removed from the revised executive order. Right. Why were these six Muslim-majority countries identified? Um, that's curious um, and, and very problematic. Well, um, so, if we look at... Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I just want to ask you, I mean, I'm looking at this, and from the research that I found, these countries, these nations, uh, Libya, Sudan, Syria... Iraq, which is not included in this revised order, Iran, Yemen, Somalia, none of them communicate with the United States with who's traveling. And, you know, in our uh, global, obviously Trump is pushing a more nationalist approach, in the global mm-hmm. society, um, not only have the FBI and CIA and DNI under Obama said that they're going to infiltrate the refugees and immigration um, populations, but they also can get in here uh, on a visa. They could fly here. Um, so wouldn't wouldn't that make sense if we don't have communication from them? That we do we get some communication? We just put a pause on this temporarily. I think that it needs to be expanded. Right again, why limiting to these six countries? I don't think that there's a foreign policy specialist worth their salt that would declare. Uh, or the possi- that there could never be a possibility of someone or persons from any one of these identified countries carrying out a terrorist attack on the United States. I don't, I don't think anyone is going to, to, to make that type of declaration. But it is to suggest that the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history was carried out by 19 assailants, 15 of whom were Saudis from Saudi Arabia. Right. Saudi Arabia is not on the list. Saudi Arabia is the hotbed of Wahhabism. Um, it's curious. Why are we excluding Saudi Arabia? Well, I Osama think bin Laden. I think Saudi Arabia should be uh, should be included, but um, I think we're getting a lot of oil from them, and I think it's a monetary thing. I mean, is that too cynical? Well, it's you know, what is the aim? Is the aim to safeguard the nation? Are we going to cherry pick with countries? Because then that's not foolproof. Right. Fifteen assailants that carried out again the worst terrorist assault in modern American history, we're south from Saudi Arabia. Whether or not we have oil interests there or not, is this about protecting our oil interests or safeguarding the nation? We know that Osama bin Laden, after 9-11, found sanctuary in Pakistan. 
Pakistan is not on the list. If we look at the domestic tragedy of San Bernardino, which was carried out by uh, a, a husband-wife uh, team, if you will, uh, and, and they were of Pakistani origin. Again, Pakistan is not on the list. So it's curious why these countries, especially when we're not receiving very large inflows of, of, of refugees or emigres from these countries, uh, the largest outflow clearly because of geography is going uh, into Europe. So whereas Turkey receives 2.8 million Syrian refugees, the United States, I think we're roughly around 14,000. That's, it only takes a few. Again, this is not right. foolproof, but it's just questionable why these countries. And then we have to analyze how does this affect our aims. Despite President Trump's proclamation of America first, America does have sustained interest in the Middle East. And the principal way that we are going to safeguard the nation is to thwart these radical groups, which means we have to engage locally. And so this type of executive order with such bombastic language really antagonize uh, what could be our allies on the ground. And that's very, very critical. Um, you know, the nature of global terrorism has more significantly since 9-11. So whereas 16 years ago, all eyes were on al-Qaeda, uh, led by Osama bin Laden, we now have groups that have morphed, decentralized, and they're over a wider geographic span. So in essence, we have to penetrate locally-based, locally-organized clandestine groups. That requires cooperation and penetration within these communities. And it just seems that this might not be the best way about going uh, to, to further our aims. And, and, and that's what's problematic on, on a policy level. Right. Tanisha Tingle-Smith on the Neil A. Curso Show podcast today, global political analyst and a former State Department official. Um, so do you think that this order would have been better received? If, well, I think the communication, the rollout the first time was, was poor. But if it was communicated and included um, more countries that are hotbeds of terror, despite any monetary uh, interest there, and just said, listen, we're suspending it for 90 days, maybe 120 days in Syria for uh, those Syrian refugees. We build the safe zone there. And 90 days, it's over. If that was better communicated and included Saudi Arabia and other nations that you mentioned, would that be a better um, travel suspension? Would that be better received? I think what it would have been better received is to focus the efforts on improving our security vetting. I think what would have been better received instead of uh, suggesting a 28% cut in the State Department budget, enhancing our efforts, because our State Department officials are our first line. Right? When people go to seek uh, visas, they go to the local uh, uh, embassy in, based in their country. Um, and those efforts are woefully understaffed and certainly could use a, a tremendous amount of, of financial uh, increase. So I think we need to enhance the operations that we already have in place. The United States has really done a very good job in the last 16 years in leading the U.S. war on terror. Uh, we have decentralized, dismantled uh, al-Qaeda leadership. That is not to suggest that the threat is not imminent, it's not real, that we do not have to contend with it for the foreseeable future. Right. But a lot of strides have been made. And so I think if we look at what has effectively worked, in uh, protecting the United States against another terrorist attack over the last 16 years. We need to do more of that. The, the expanse would practically cover the globe of every country. Why not Indonesia? Indonesia is the largest Muslim-majority country in the world. Indonesia has been beset with challenges of terrorism. India has suffered at the hands of Islamic extremism. Mm -hmm. India is the second largest Muslim population. I think we also need to be concerned about travel coming out of Europe, quite frankly. Um, yeah, there, there's course. a very restive population in, in France, in, in the U.K., in Germany. Uh, so should we be concerned? Should we block possible immigrants coming from France? We don't know. They could be French-born citizens who have been radicalized, as we saw play out in the unfortunate terrorist attacks that took place in France over the last several years. So it would be so expansive because it, it, it's amorphous. It's borderless. So it's not singularly identifying one country or the other. And I think I will admit, the six countries that, are, that have been identified are countries that are experiencing a tremendous amount of political and social upheaval. And these are war-torn countries, uh, hot spots if there ever were any. Um, and 
So there, there are a lot of areas to be concerned about what's happening in each of the respective countries. But to limit it to those six is extraordinarily narrow. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you mentioned Europe. I mean, they all have open borders there. And one of the reasons for Brexit is the immigration policy. And you see them just walk right across the border and then they are possibly coming here. We don't know. And honestly, last week I see a story that an Iraqi insurgent comes in to our country. Somehow they get in through the vetting process. The um, organizer or one of the organizers of the last women's march um, was a Pakistani uh, terrorist who came in here, lied about her uh, her past, and was granted citizenship. So, what is the what is the problem? Because you bring up vetting, why why are we not vetting properly? What I mean is President Trump's plan. Uh, I mean, it sounds good. Let me ask you, as a former State Department official, does it make sense to you uh, to implement a more extreme vetting policy that includes surveillance at the border, that includes the border wall? Well, the border wall is a separate issue, right? I think when they're talking about immigration flows of, of a different type. Um, but certainly increased vetting, I, I, I think that is absolutely essential. And as, as much resources as needed, um, and then some, uh, need, need to be applied in that area. Um, and staffing our State Department, staffing our local officials, that is critical. I cannot emphasize enough that the State Department is the first line of defense. Um, in, in, in this vetting process. Um, so that needs to be key, but a more comprehensive policy. So we're talking about coordination with FBI, and this, is, this has been one of the challenges that we've um, been contending with since 9-11. How do we improve the inter- and intra-government agency cooperation? So the State Department is effectively communicating with the intelligence groups as well as defense when necessary and FBI. Uh, so that we, we can, we can if, if one agency picks up on information that is transferred to the, the other uh, agency that has to make take action. That's really important. And those systems need to be beefed up to be sure. It is not foolproof and it never will be foolproof. Unfortunately, there is no panacea or magic bullet that's going to uh, solve um, this really naughty and complex challenge that we are confronting. But uh, vetting is absolutely essential. We're talking to Tanisha Tingle-Smith, a global political analyst and uh, former State Department official. And I want to ask you this because you've been in Washington, D.C. You you know obviously know how the uh, political machinations uh, work there. It seems like there's such a divide, not, be- not just between parties, but between the establishment and President Trump. I mean, I've been saying it's just whether you supported him or not, it's about supporting the country and, and hoping for the best for the country and hoping that we don't have another terrorist attack and that we can protect ourselves in this age of terror. Um, from being in Washington, why are people, why are specifically, why are the Obama leftovers that are still in our government, although they're slowly being put out as the cabinet gets approved, um, why are they so vehemently against Trump and against the nationalist policies? I think it's a I think there is bipartisan, bipartisan consensus around the very real and uh, potentially eminent threat of global terrorism. I, I think that that cuts across party lines. It, and um, this is a highly polarized and divisive political environment right now in Washington. Um, but I think both sides would agree that one of the principal tasks of the President of the United States as Commander-in-Chief is to safeguard the nation. And so I think if the, if the President at the helm, that's the tone of leadership, um, engages the Democrats, although not in the majority of the legislature, um, to, to come up with a bipartisan proposal, that would go a long way, or at least some way in, on, on and ideas about how best to safeguard the nation. Right. I don't think either party corners the market on good ideas. Again, especially around one of the most complicated and pressing security challenges that we're confronting. This is very different than um, past challenges we've had. If you think of the Cold War and the 50-year contestation with the Soviet Union, this is of a very different nature. It's asymmetric. It's amorphous, it's borderless, 
Um, and it requires a very different approach than what the U.S. foreign policy was stood up to contend with. Um, and so it, it really is going to require him bringing together different people um, and differing ideas. And he, if he's open to hearing uh, perhaps alternative ways of, of, of promulgating our interests, then that would go a long way. I, I don't think that the Obama individuals are any less concerned about safeguarding the nation than were Trump's employees. And quite frankly, the Obama administration effectively ended at 11.59 a.m. January 20th. So at this point, you know, the president of the United States is, is Donald Trump. Right. And, and all of those who work for the government as well as the citizens owe him the respect of the office um, and all eyes are on him to lead our nation through these very precarious times. What one may have thought about the successes or failures of the Obama administration are over and are now left to the academic historian. I agree. Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Tanisha. And, you know, you bring up he has the absolute right to protect the nation. That's right there in the U.S. Constitution and 8 U.S. Code 1182F that, um, that I cited earlier. Um, you know, you also bring up bipartisan support to protect the country. Is it even possible at this point um, that both parties could work together? I mean, I've said it before. If you have two strong parties, that's better for the country. Right now, one has you know no um, power, really. I mean, you have the Republicans control Congress. They also control the state legislatures, and the Democrats are just resisting. Um, and not to get too into politics, because I like to talk about the policy of it, but because you've been in Washington, I'm curious – do you think that, you know, those like Schumer and Pelosi can kind of get over their egos and get with Trump and say, listen, we do need to protect the country. Let's sit down and discuss this. Because to me, it seems like Trump is open-minded and wants to have an open discussion. I don't necessarily think this is about egos. And I think this is about um, fulfilling the job which they were elected to do. And if they do not um, carry out their duties, um, the electorate will make a decision in two years. Um, I, I don't think this is about Pelosi's ego. There, there are, you know, good people can have differing approaches. Um, right. And I think perhaps in changing the language, changing the dialogue of engagement. Um, and you know, there was a period in time, politics shifts, right? There was a period when the Democrats, you know, controlled both houses and the Republicans were the minority. And, you know, the tides have shifted again, where the Republicans have control. That's the nature of our political system. I don't think that's a surprise, particularly to uh, uh, professional politicians. Um, and they have found ways to work through that, um, through sustained communication, dialogue, cooperation, negotiation. But I think all conversations have to start with the premise. We may have differences about policy prescriptions, but what we all agree upon is that the interest of the United States are paramount. And everyone's foremost intention um, is to serve the United States in the best way that they know how. Um, and I think that that needs to be resurfaced again. Um, there seems to be a lot of very uh, divisive language, accusatory language. So if you disagree with the president, somehow you're unpatriotic. Right. I don't know that that really fosters, that's not a big starting point. For the conversation, much like the language of the first uh, travel ban, you know, it was so bombastic that it, it and inflammatory. Let's leave the constitutionality aside for one second and look at how this is interpreted to build a lie in the respective regions. That's not a good starting point for a conversation. We think all Muslims are terrorists. All Muslims, you know, these sort of broad, sweeping uh, declaratory statements don't go very far. It may work for television. It may have worked in a campaign. It doesn't work in the sort of nitty-gritty of policymaking um, and often behind the doors, closed doors um, negotiations. So I do think, yes, I am an optimist, and I do think that around the issue of national security, I do think there is a space for both parties to come together. I do. And I do think that there is and should be, and I will say this repeatedly, a respect for the office of the presidency. And so we are focused now on Trump, Trump's policies, and Trump's intentions. No longer this, this bashing or, 
or uh, debate about Obama. Again, the Obama administration is over. Right. And, you know, I think that um, there needs to be kind of need to move past that on both sides. And uh, but I think it's it seems like it's an establishment versus outsider um, ongoing battle. And because uh, you have those, you know, within the Republican establishment, too, who are um, opposed to Trump and, and what he has uh, brought to the table. And listen, he was elected. Um, you know, he's he's the man in, in office and we need to you know, we do need to support him, and, and his Trump agenda was uh, was voted for on the 8th. Uh, let me ask you this before I let you go, Tanisha Tingle-Smith. Um, the If you were advising President Trump, if you were in the State Department uh, today, um, what would you advise him on foreign policy in terms of eradicating the radical ideology um, that has come across our borders? You've brought up the open borders uh, that we have. What would you suggest as an advisor, if you were, to President Trump? I would advise him to embark on a multi-pronged, comprehensive policy um, that engages our diplomatic efforts, um, uh, enhances our diplomacy and our outreach, that fosters our cultural diplomacy that goes a very long way in building bridges um, in these communities, so they have a better understanding of who and what America represents. This is not an anti-Muslim, uh, we don't have anti-Muslim intentions, um, and there is space for all of us to cooperate and engage. You don't think and he's been so, clear on that enough? Has he been clear on that? I mean, the language has been quite inflammatory. Um, again, I think that when you make broad sweeping statements about all Muslims, that's extremely extremely problematic. All Muslims are not terrorists. And in order for us to eradicate, or you know, if that is possible, but certainly to significantly dismantle and thwart the strength and potential of radicalized Islamic groups, we must cooperate and rely upon the local community. Right. The heavy lifting of this is going to be done in country. The Lebanese, the Sudanese, the Iranians, they're the ones living day after day with this terror. They're the ones that are going to have to fix this, this, this problem within. And so we have to cooperate with them. The United States is not capable, um, despite all of our incredible military strength and our diplomatic prowess, are not going to be able to solve this problem alone. This is not a unilateral issue. It's going to require multilateral cooperation from our European partners, who, as I mentioned, are also contending with this very real threat of radicalized um, Islam and, and terrorism on their borders and in their country. That's a problem for them as well, so we sure. need to cooperate with those partners. So, yeah, cooperation is extremely important, but it's multivarigated. Diplomacy is important. Development is important. Our military, we're needed in certain countries that are embroiled in conflict, is extremely important. And it's also nuanced. The challenges of Libya are not that of Somalia. And Somalia is not Yemen. So you do need to bring in a diverse group of experts within the Republican Party. Let's start there. You know, there are extraordinarily talented and capable foreign policy hands within the Republican Party that were ostracized during this election. And they need to be brought back into the fold. And that's the challenge within the Republican Party right now. Um, you yeah. need experienced hands to manage this. this. These are very long, deep-seated, complicated problems. So yes, a diverse group of people within the government is important. Multi-pong development, diplomacy, military, cultural diplomacy, all of these things come together to make a cohesive and coherent policy over time. If we look back to our, our victory over the Soviet Union, that was 50 years, 50 years of a contestation with the Soviet Union. This is not going to be solved in a year or the four years of the Trump presidency. I think we have to accept that, or possibly eight, depending upon the will of the electorate. This is something that's going to, we're going to unfortunately be contending with over the long haul. Um, and so cooperation, I think, setting the tone, using the bully pulpit of the presidency to affect positive change is extraordinarily powerful um, and, and has worked very successfully in the past by, by his predecessors. 
Well, I mean, you saw him at the Nashville rally yesterday, and it, uh, you know, he definitely inspires his base. It's they always talk about it. The media always talks about uh, him not reaching out beyond that, but his base definitely gets fired up. Definitely gets um, gets inspired by that. Let me just—I would have let you go, but I do want to just bring up one thing that you said in terms of radical Islam, um, and I want to ask you about the communities because it's so crucial. Um, I've had a retired immigration and naturalization service agent on my program uh, multiple times who said that, and obviously what you said is correct, not all Muslims are terrorists, but they need to work with us in those communities. And he brought up the fact that sanctuary city policy has, and obviously that's a local government fighting with the federal government, and the sanctuary city policy has actually hurt those in the community because they're afraid to speak up. And while that they would, if they spoke up, about any crime that's going on, they would be granted um, a uh, waiver to stay in the country, even if they were in illegally, but they don't speak up because those criminals then are let go and they retaliate. So they're afraid to speak up. So isn't there, uh, and uh, you would know best, but isn't there in the communities this feeling of, I don't want to communicate. I don't care who the president is. I'm not going to communicate with what's going on in terms of crime because I'm more worried about my own personal safety than you know, that of that of the entire country and sanctuary city policy certainly does not uh, does not help uh, in that scenario. I think that's a challenge of all local law enforcement uh, officials and efforts, no matter the issue. Um, that's a challenge as you look at some of the crime ridden cities in uh, around America, very you know, large urban centers uh, that had been mired in, quite frankly, low intensity conflict. And local police forces really needed cooperation and community partners in order to identify uh, the perpetrators of crime and, and, and criminal networks and such. Um, and there's always been a concern about personal safety. So that is universal in these types of um, uh, engagements. Um, there's a way to, again, bridge the gap um, through sustained engagement. And I'm harping on that because it's so very, very important. Um, people need to feel as if they're not targeted. They need to feel heard um, and, and not universally lumped together. Um, and, and that's one of the challenges we have with this language, um, which we've been talking about you know, for, the, for, the, for the duration of the show. Um, identifying Muslims, singling out Muslims, um, doesn't really help us. Um, it, it doesn't build bridges and doesn't build partners in the very communities um, that are essential to us uh, furthering our goal of hopefully one day eradicating this problem. Tanisha Tingle-Smith. Oh, yep. Sorry, I didn't want to mean, uh, sorry. interrupt. I don't, it, it, it's, just, it's just focusing on really the universality of our experiences, and, and, and that is a really powerful bridge. Um, because there are many in the Muslim community whose lives have been irrevocably damaged and altered at the hands of Islamic terrorists as well. Yeah. And these, these people are, are facing it more than you or I. And so... They're certainly targets. They, they're absolute targets. And, and you know, look at the number of Sudanese refugees that were coming here. Many of them were fleeing from the militant regime. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they actually were fleeing from before or under unified Sudan. They were coming from the south. Um, and so I think there's probably more areas of cooperation. And we should go with open, open ears, right? Because they can offer different tactics and techniques and approaches because we are not of the community, um, would not necessarily be aware of. So there's a lot to be learned on both sides. And I think that that can be effectively done through cooperative communication. That's a great point. Uh, Tanisha Tingle-Smith, you have a book coming out as well, right? I do. I'm in the process of writing it. Uh, thank you for mentioning it. I'm, uh, my work is uh, exploring uh, the new rising powers of the global south and looking at how they are using different forms of culture as well as economic statecraft uh, to, to improve their standing and power positioning in, in the world. That's fantastic. Well, you're welcome to come on anytime. Tanisha Tinkle-Smith, a global political analyst and former State Department official, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your day.
All right, well, that wraps up the Neil A. Cruiser Show podcast for this Thursday. We'll be back, of course, tomorrow. Um, a lot on the Sunday show already being planned. Uh, so Sunday's show, the Neil A. Cruiser Show, 12 noon Eastern time on NeilACruiser.com will be uh, a packed show with a lot to get to. Um, Tanisha Tingle-Smith will have her on at some point uh, on the show, and we'll have her on again on the podcast. So I thought that was really um, intellectual conversation there about uh, foreign policy and really you know, the intricacies of making sure that America is first, uh, but also recognizing uh, where our enemies are. And, you know, I mean, as far as travel suspension, I'm even more hawkish than Trump put out. I'm for suspending Saudi Arabia, uh, like Tunisia said, um, with those interests. Um, but, you know, I think a lot gets caught up in the rhetoric. Not always necessary. Got to put America first, people. We'll talk to you tomorrow. God bless you, and God bless America. The Neil A. Caruso Show podcast is a production of Caruso Enterprises. Engaging, informing, and entertaining. Passion-driven, factual content that makes a difference following Neil A. Caruso on social media. And log on to neilacaruso.com to sign up for Caruso's comments, newsletters, and be the first to know.